We now continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew, turning to Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30 will be the sermon text this morning. Matthew 19. Hear now the word of God. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word remains forever. He who dies with the most toys, the culture says, wins. How much is enough? Rockefeller was asked. Ah, just a little bit more. How about Steve Cannon? Anybody remember him from WCCO? Any, anyone at all? How would he, oh, there are a few hands. How would he conclude every show? He was huge back in the 80s, right, 90s? He would finish his show, I've got the money. He had a great voice. That's our culture's view of money, isn't it? It's all over the place. And we see that in our sinful hearts, which by nature are selfish, covetous, dissatisfied, and greedy, think, yeah, that's right. Jesus addresses this here. The church to Laodicea has a letter written. Do you remember that? Revelation 3? You say that I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We say, well, I'm not any of those things. 
I'm not helpless. I'm not needy. I'm not lost. I'm well thought of. I, I do really well, actually, in the work I have. The natural man says, well, if there is a God, as one pastor says, I'm sure he'll reward nice people as long as we do our best. I'm religious. I try to be nice. I do good things. I probably do more good things than bad things. God must be pleased with me, right? This is a part of a group of people scarcely touched by the gospel, C.S. Lewis talks about. Not that they don't know the gospel, not that they haven't heard the gospel, but they're untouched by it. They're not moved by it. They come one Lord's Day after another and just leave unchanged. Nice people lost in their niceness. Their goodness and religious interest is a stumbling block for them from entering the kingdom of God. Minnesota nice, this is everywhere here, isn't it? C.S. Lewis was right. This text, loved ones, weaves together the theme, first of all, the kingdom of heaven, which Matthew, a tax collector, before Jesus called him as a disciple, has been weaving throughout his gospel. It particularly touches on worldly wealth and the impact it has on our hearts. And it does so in a context where just a few verses before, Jesus is talking to little children saying that unless you become like little children, needy and dependent, trusting the Lord, you cannot enter the kingdom. Let's zero in on how this particularly applies to us. What could keep us from God? What sin or idol or love could cause us, like this rich young man, to forfeit the eternal inheritance of heaven? First, the blindness of the heart. Verse 19, chapter 19, verse 16 begins, and behold, you notice that? That's a big marker that Jesus is saying, something big is happening. The crowd has been with Jesus since the beginning of the chapter, a large crowd. He's had compassion upon them, healing them. They heard him talk about marriage, we looked at that last week, and to children, we looked at that a few months ago. And now out of the crowd comes one that the Gospels together tell us, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is a young rich ruler. We meet people like this every day, under 40. He's already made his first million, maybe two. If he's alive today, he lives in that neighborhood with a $5 million house with a garage that could fit five cars, maybe a yacht, maybe more. He's got a villa over there and a cabin over here, and he's got great possessions, owns much property. He's in charge. He's dynamic, assertive, a leader. He delivers. He has success. He holds rank, either religiously or civilly. By modern standards, you think, this guy's got it all together. He walks into a church and you think, well, who wouldn't want someone like this? The disciples are probably thinking the same. Look at this. A prospective disciple, Jesus. Don't offend him. Don't let him walk away. We need him. He's on our team, right? He asked Jesus a question. Something is disturbing his heart and mind. In one, ways, in one way, it's the right question. In another way, it's the wrong question. What must I do, he says, to have eternal life? Do you notice how many times he uses the word I? I, I, I. This guy is a narcissist. Or, as the Bible says, he's selfish. He's all about himself. I, I, I. It's the right question because 
Elsewhere, people say, well, what must I do to be saved? Or what does salvation look like? In that sense, okay, that's good. But he's thinking about this in terms of the Mosaic law, not the promise of grace, but okay, I have to do this to get this. I've got physical life. I'm young. I'm rich. I'm a ruler. I've got social life. But he doesn't have spiritual life. It's nagging him. He's guilty. He knows something's wrong. He wants to know, okay, what can I fulfill? I do my job. I'm a doer. I'm successful. What do I owe God? And what can I do so that God is obligated to me so that God owes me eternal life? That's how he's thinking here. The religion of the natural man. He expects Jesus to say, yeah, you are on your way. That's what he's looking for. A pat on the back. Keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. You are way ahead of the rest. Look at you. Look at your success. Come on, man. Keep it up. Jesus engages him differently, though. The answer, look at verse 17, hardly seems to fit the question. Doesn't that look interesting to you? What does Jesus say? Verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Who is he talking about there? Who's the one who is good? God. Who's standing before him? God in the flesh. The Son of God. Incarnate, Jesus Christ. He wants him to reflect on that. To think about true goodness. If you would enter eternal life, verse 17, keep the commandments. This is a strange, Jesus wants you to read this and think, this is a bit odd here. What's he saying? Is Jesus teaching that if you do enough and you keep the law well enough that you'll be saved? He wants you to wrestle with that, to think about it. The man says, which ones? Meaning, which commandments? Now Jesus surprises us again. Because you would think he would start with the first one, wouldn't you? Idolatry. Or maybe the last one, covetousness. But he doesn't go there. Where does he go? Five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Out of order a bit. And then the command to love your neighbor. A surprise. The second table of the law. Not just the first table here, but the second. Talking about how we treat each other. The young man replies, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? What qualities of this man come to your mind? If we were in a Bible study, what would you say? There's a lot of things, aren't there? One is he has zeal. He has energy. He wants to do it. He thinks he's done it. But he also is plagued by anxiety because he doesn't know if he's done it well enough. He doesn't know that he'll get rewarded with what he wants, eternal life, based on what he's done. He's struggling. He's zealous, he's anxious, and he's ignorant. He's sincere. He really thinks he's done it. Yeah, I've kept them. He's in bondage to a false gospel that says that you are more righteous than you actually are. That you have more power to please God than you really do. It's all external. 
It's all performance. It's all what people think of him. I haven't killed anyone, so I've kept the sixth commandment. I haven't fornicated. I'm good at number seven. I haven't ripped off and stolen money from Caesar. I'm good at number eight. And down the line it goes. One symptom of sin, loved ones, is our short-sightedness. Our blindness to ourselves, to our own heart. We think, I know myself better than anyone, but it's not true. His blindness leads to, secondly, his sorrow. Do you see what Jesus does as he engages him? He doesn't quibble. He accepts the man's self-judgment and he moves on. Okay, you kept them? Great. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions. Give to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Perfect here, not meaning without sin, but mature, complete, wholehearted. Jesus wants this man, through the law of God, to really see him as he is. This guy thought, show me what to do to be saved. And Jesus says, you need to get rid of something, not do something. He's turning it around. You don't understand that the law commands us to love God and our neighbor perfectly. And the problem is not with riches. Jesus knows this man's heart. That's what he's after here. Matthew 6, 24. He wants this man to love God. And you can't love God and money at the same time. You can't have a divided heart and say, I've got mammon and stuff and everything I love here and God over here. And you kind of liquidate your securities. Unload your real estate. Cash in your insurance policies. Withdraw all your savings. Do it. That's what Jesus is saying in our contemporary language, right? Not that that would earn eternal life. But he's showing this man his idolatry, which is the first use of the law of God. Paul talks about it. I would not have known do not covet unless the law had said do not covet. When I read that commandment, it was like a bottle of Coke or Sprite. You're shaking it up, kids. What happens when you open it? It sprays everywhere. When I heard the command, I wanted to covet more. When I saw the sign that my neighbor posts, kids, no trespassing, it makes you want to go to his yard even more. It's stirring up sin within me. The problem's not with the law. The law is good. The problem is in here. He didn't see his sin. Verse 21. Entering the kingdom of heaven and gaining eternal life requires allegiance to God's Messiah, Champlin says. Meaning, the heart needs to be changed. And only by coming to Jesus will he find rest in the face of the law's perfect demand. What does God's law require? Perfect obedience. How many of us have done it? None of us. We're born sinners. It's our condition. We commit actual sin. We fail to love God. But here is a pardon. Here is God's Savior. Here are true riches. Right before him is Jesus. What will he decide? God and wealth, the present evil age and everything it offers and all the benefits he gets because of his position are the age to come. Which will it be? How will he respond? Does he say, Jesus, I see it. 
you're right? Does he repent? Does he cry out for mercy? Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've loved money way more than I've loved you. I've been so blind to my sin. I've been living for myself. Help me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. He doesn't. The deceitfulness of wealth chokes the word of God. He goes away, very sad. As far as one commentator says, the only person in the Bible who meets Jesus and goes away particularly like this. Why is he sad? Because he won't give up his lifestyle, his riches for Jesus' sake. He loves his wealth more than he loves Jesus and he knows it. And he knows he won't inherit eternal life. The gospel in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God who is rich, yet for our sake became poor that we through his poverty might become rich is right there. But Jesus through the Spirit of God, as the Son of God, and the Word of God, sends an arrow to his Achilles' heel, his most vulnerable spot. He wanted eternal life on his terms, but not this. No way. That's too much, Jesus. I can't do that. I would rather have my blank, whatever in our own hearts the Lord is searching us on. I would rather have that than Jesus. I can't live without that. No way. Too busy for family, too busy for church, too busy for God. I've just got my life to live. I've got my retirement to live. I'm just going to do it how I want. God, maybe I'll put you over here. I've got my life to live, my career to pursue, and I'll, I'll put God over here if there's time. Beloved, what are we fearing? What are we trusting? Where are we taking refuge? Whose voices do we listen to? Where do we set our hopes? What do we dream about? What do we daydream about? What occupies our mind most? What are we most anxious about? What are the things that we measure others by? This is a revealing question for our hearts. Because we often measure others by the things that we treasure the most. By their clothing, some might laugh, no way. Others, maybe. By their education, by their popularity, by the people they hang with, by their cars, by their houses, by their salary, by their trips, by their lifestyle, by their business success, by, it could be anywhere. Jesus wants us to ask questions of our own hearts. Life is an investment. Think of it that way. The question for us today is, am I going to invest in the short term or long term? Do you remember what Jesus says back in Matthew 6? No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. This is an opportunity for parents to reflect on this. Myself, too. Last night for devotions, we talked to our kids about this, teaching your kids about money. Some of you probably do way better at this than I do. 
This is not a guilt trip. It's an, a question to ask. What do we say to our kids about money? If our kids, and this is what we asked our own kids, based on you, what you see mom and dad do and how we spend our money and where we, that, what we value, what, what do you think about money? What do you think about what we value? We asked them that. We said, we're not here to lecture you. We, we want to hear from you. What are you seeing? What's our life demonstrating to you? The oldest is 13 down to three. This is Marty Makowski teaching your children about money. Some things we talked about. Everything belongs to God. Right? We are stewards of it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God is the greatest giver. It's grounded in the gospel. He has given us his son. He's given us everything in Christ. The heart can only hold one treasure. Matthew 6. Jesus is that greatest treasure. He is the pearl of great price. The riches of this life can choke out our love for God. Do we realize that as mom and dads? Yeah. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself. There's nothing wrong with money. The heart that loves money more than God is the problem. God will provide everything we need. That's important for us to pray. God, help me to trust you in that and help our family to live that way. Your family might have much in terms of earthly wealth or very little. God will provide everything we need. That's part of the wonderful calling of a deacon. Where there are those who are poor and living paycheck to paycheck or struggling with bills to pay or food to buy. Or, that's what we're here for as a church. If you are in that spot, talk to one of the deacons. Talk to us. We are here to provide, as God has provided for us in Christ, with those things you need to live. We don't want you to, to think you have to live in poverty like that without enough to eat. God, by the gospel, opens our eyes to giving. That's a helpful thing. God, help me to see the need around me. To give cheerfully, not begrudgingly, not out of guilt, but out of a sense of gratitude for all I have in Christ. The light of Jesus' love changes us here. It's when we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ that we are changed more into his image. This leads third to the impossibility of salvation. Jesus continues talking to him. He begins now talking about a camel. Do you notice that? Look at verse 24. This is not a gate in Jerusalem. Maybe you've heard of that, that there's a literal gate that a camel, small, can get on its knees and barely fit through. No. This is literally a camel. He wants you to be cartoonish-like amazed at the hyperbole, the exaggeration. Kids, can a camel, those big animals with humps that spit, have you ever been spit at by a camel? A llama hit me once. We were getting too close to it. We were on a vacation. I should not have done it. Kind of going up and looking at it in the eye. Don't look at that thing. He, he stared me down. He spit at me. I, I would have spit at me too. A big camel. A little needle with a tiny little eye in it. Kids, if you tried to do that, what would happen? It's impossible. So does that mean it's impossible for a rich person to be saved? Yes. He wants the weight of that to fall on us. Notice that he doesn't say it's easier to be saved if you're poor. doesn't say that. He doesn't say you are saved if you're poor. doesn't say that. He wants us to reflect here. The disciples are astonished. They're knocked down. 
amazed because in that day, someone thought, if you're rich, that means God really blesses you. Are there rich people in the Bible who are blessed by God? Of course, Abraham, Boaz, Isaac, Job. But does earthly riches equal the blessing of God like a one-to-one? No. Do you remember the book of Job? Remember the, the confusion there? Job is suffering. The friends say, you must have done something really bad, Job. You need to repent because you wouldn't be suffering like this unless you really sinned. You're getting it. God is coming at you. That's not true. How does the sound of music have the alternative to that? Oh, in my life as Julia Andrews sees the captain about to marry her, Maria. Somewhere in my childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. I must be a good person. Laura Ingalls Wilder, the same thing, kids. Got to be good. Got to try harder. Got to be religious. Then God will be pleased with you. It's impossible to save ourselves. Whether you're rich or poor, Whether you're rich in intelligence, being smart won't save you, being good won't get you there, being talented, being creative, but I'm gifted, I'm a high achiever, good that you're a high achiever. But think about Ferguson. The great mistake many of us make is to look only at our sin and failure and think, I've got to try harder. Yep, I failed this week, I've been greedy, I've got to do better, I'm glad I got beat up by the law. No. Our need is not to say, I've got to do more, but to look to what God has done in Christ. To see that Christ is our salvation. He is the pearl of great price. He is our righteousness. To trust him by faith. And that when he died on the cross, as I'm united to him by faith, I died to sin's dominion. I've been raised with Christ to newness of life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You are a new creation, Christian. You struggle with indwelling sin. Yes, we are brought to repentance by the kindness of God. The law of God teaches us by the Spirit of God that God loves us in Jesus as it points us to Jesus. The law points to the gospel. It points us away from ourselves to our need for a Savior. And we see that Christ has accomplished all of that. We rest in him. We rejoice in him. C.S. Lewis said, what kept me from becoming a Christian so long is I wanted an area of my life where I said, this is mine. Don't touch it. Not there. Not that. We can't do this and be a Christian. We won't follow Christ then. But with God... Look at verse 26. All things are possible. That's a verse, if you're looking for something to memorize really quick, you can put it in your car. As one pastor said, put it on your window where you're brushing your teeth. With God, all things are possible. Only God can do this. Salvation is from the Lord beginning to end. He opens our blind eyes to see our sin and to see our Savior. By his Spirit, he raises us from death to life. The power of God, the impossibility of God is that the Son of God became man to save sinners and bring us to himself. That's the only way, by the regenerating power of the Spirit, a self-centered, greedy, covetous heart can be changed. Not by trying harder, but by trusting in his goodness, trusting in Jesus' grace, trusting in his love for me. He saves to the uttermost. If you trust him, you receive all you need. With man, it's impossible. 
With God, all things are possible, including, fourth, the call to follow. Who opens his mouth? Verse 27, Peter again. I didn't mean to look at you, Peter. (laughs) Peter, the spokesman. He says what everyone else is thinking. Peter, now think about the disciples. Matthew was very successful, a tax collector. He wrote this. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, fishermen, maybe very wealthy. They maybe had their own boat. These guys left very successful jobs here. We left our homes. We left our jobs. We're not like that rich young ruler. We've done it, Jesus. We're following you. Is Peter struggling here a bit? Probably, yeah. But Jesus responds to him in amazing grace. In the new world. He speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. He speaks of verse 29, inheriting eternal life. He speaks in verse 30 of everything in the world that looks one way is not really the way it is. The first will be last, the last will be first. He reminds us that Christianity offers more than we ever dreamed in Christ. And by the Holy Spirit, it demands more than we could ever have thought. God doesn't accept us just the way we are. Have you heard that lie? God loves you just the way you are. God accepts us, Ferguson, only in and through Jesus. And he never means to leave us the way we are. He doesn't mean to leave us unchanged. Second Corinthians, he means to transform us more into the image of Jesus, our beloved Savior. Brother Bert and the brother deacons, a reminder in this text that you are servants. Each Christian is a servant, but the word deacon means servant. Jesus is the greatest servant, the suffering servant, who came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Deacons, you are to serve as agents of Christ's mercy, people in need, serving the poor among us and among the broader church community, considering ways actively that we as a congregation can be involved in these things. This diaconate is a gift to the church for the administration of mercy in the name of Christ by the power of the gospel. Jesus saved us body and soul. The deacons want to make sure the poor in their body and soul are being cared for, in particular their bodily, physical needs. Brother deacons, it's your opportunity and joy to provide timely help in these ways. Your humble service to others is the ministry of Christ's mercy to them through your words and actions. It's a tangible way for them to taste and see that the Lord is good. For us as a church family to experience Jesus as the overflowing fountain of all that is good. Brother deacons, this is a high honor. We hope God will continue to raise up elders and deacons among us, by the way. It's a high honor. It's a privilege. It's a joy to serve in this way by the Spirit of God, to put flesh to Christ's mercy and compassion as we approach people who are in need, to promote and organize and encourage the church in these things, that we as a congregation will be characterized by mercy and service. Yes, it is costly to follow Christ. It is a great joy it's not that you give stuff up. Have you heard that before? Okay, I've got to give this up. No, Jesus isn't saying to you here, you've got to go home and sell your new car, 
our old Odyssey just died. We actually just bought a new car a few days ago. <laughs> He's not telling you that you have to go home and sell your cabin. He's asking us to reflect on our own hearts. To, by the grace of God, say, I, yeah, I'm struggling in this area. I need help. I need the help of my fellow congregation here. I've got a blind spot. Maybe I don't know it. God, help me to love you more than whatever this thing is. Help me in the gifts that you've given to be a good steward, in the wealth that you've given to so many to use it to the honor of God. I want to commend the congregation and your generosity in giving. God is pleased as we use our gifts to serve time, talent, and treasure. We are to be encouraged in this as we look to Jesus, as we look to that promise of the new world, as we realize in Christ we have blessings that money can't buy, a kingdom, eternal life, the promise of a resurrected body. We talked about that in Sunday school. Bodies that grow sick, that are filled with disease and suffering and sorrow and sadness and broken and things that won't get fixed sometimes in this life. We look forward to that inheritance that Christ has purchased. It is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading. It is the age to come. And in that age, Christ himself is our treasure and our joy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's respond, standing as a church family, turning to page 8 as we sing.